to this episode of the Thrive Theology Podcast. Um, today we're going to do something a little bit new. Maybe we haven't really done it before, but I found it super interesting. So we have an irregular series on this podcast where we talk about the lives of faithful men and women in church history. Um, we hope that by sharing their stories, you'll be encouraged in your own faith walk. Now, as you can imagine, more men than women have their stories and work preserved in history, and it can be difficult to find the stories and work of women. I wanted to share some of the lives of women in church history, but there really wasn't enough information to do a whole episode on one or even two women, um, specifically because I was working in early church history and medievalist church history. So I turned it into an episode about the different ways a medieval woman could express her faith outside of marriage and motherhood. Turns out there were well-developed and diverse options for women desiring a religious life. So we're going to start with explaining some of the different options for medieval women, and then we're going to finish with the stories of some of the prominent women whose writings and lives have influenced the church and are preserved to this day. Okay, so we're going to start by talking about all the different life paths that a woman could take. Let's start with the basics. When a woman entered religious life, she often brought a dowry with her to support her expenses. And this would have normally gone to her husband if she got married, but if she wasn't getting married, she'd bring it into her religious life. Because of this expense, it was often the daughters of noblemen and wealthy families who entered religious lives because their families could afford to give them a dowry and therefore support them. The choice to enter a convent was made by the woman's family usually, although it was used as a way to escape unwanted marriages by a lot of women. Some women felt a call to it from a very young age, and others would be given by their families as a sign of their devotion to God. Many came to the convent as children, even very young children, if their families had enough money to support their care starting at an earlier age. For the women who chose this life, um, it offered independence, education, and agency. The convents and monasteries were supported by wealthy families who placed their children in them. So it almost, to me, kind of sounds like boarding school, but in a religious sense. Yeah. Like you're sending your child there to be cared for other people, but like you have to pay for it. Yeah. And then, except they don't come back when they're done boarding school. They stay there. Right. For their whole life. But you're choosing their life for them. Um, now, if you're poor and your family didn't have the dowry needed to live in a convent, um, a poor girl could live the religious life in a convent, but she would often do so as a servant or maybe a lower level nun. There was no lack of work for these girls as many of the upper level women devoted themselves to prayer and scripture reading, um, leaving the household duties and care of themselves to others. We'll also talk about later about some women who needed even more care because of their chosen path. Many of these paths required celibacy, chastity, poverty, and piety. The women were expected to give of their possessions, titles, families, and wealth. This was not limited to women. Men in the religious life also committed to these things. I mean, that's going to be a refrain as we go through these different um, life paths. These were the options available to women, but the male counterpart for these options did exist. We're just going to focus on women. As the choice for women in medieval life was between marriage to a man or the religious life, becoming a nun was referred to as marriage to Christ, and it held the same weight as a marriage. You took vows, you renounced your old family, you were devoted for life to the church. So first we're going to talk about a nun. So there were different levels of the nun, all the way up to an abbess, and we're going to talk about all of those. So convents were run by both men and women leaders, and until the 11th century, women had quite a bit of authority over their own orders. 
Entry into a convent was considered marriage to God, as Bethany said, and members were known as sisters, and a female leader was called an abbess, and if they were male, it was an abbot. So if you had a nun's convent, which was all women, you could have a female in charge of that who would be an abbess, or you could have a male who was an abbot. And then you would also have, obviously a male would be in charge of a monastery, which is the male version of a nun's convent. Convents were cloistered or separate from lay people, and the people inside were often completely cut off from their former lives, and they only interacted with others involved in the religious life. As Bethany mentioned, these women took vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience. Convent life was communal, with everyone doing their part to support the whole um, organization. It was highly organized and routine, with much time spent in prayer, scripture reading, and meditation. Service to the poor and needy was a priority, and it manifested in care for the sick, feeding the hungry, alms for the poor, sheltering visitors, and caring for orphans. Usually, common clothing was adopted to distinguish between different roles. Now, the way this worked, you might even be familiar with this, especially if you've watched, I don't know, The Sound of Music. (laughs) Um, So lower level nuns, um, or maybe like the early nuns, they would have simple clothing, but maybe with some distinguishing marks, like maybe it had like a waistline drawn in on it. Um, But it would be like a certain color. And as you went up through the levels of a nun, your clothing would change to symbolize that, but it was still quite plain. So the headdress would be different for the abbess um, of the convent. She would have like maybe more white um, and such. So you could tell that someone was a nun from what they were wearing and you could tell what type of nun they were by the different distinguishing characteristics of those. So as these convents gained a little bit of um, notoriety, Some prominent women were actually sought after as advisors and counselors by other men in the church, governmental leaders, and even kings, popes, and emperors. They were considered to have a closer relationship with God and could dispense his wisdom better because of their devotion to the religious life. Convents could also be viewed as a way to get rid of a pesky female relation, if necessary. So you may be familiar with recent um, stories because of Prince Philip's death. His mother um, had some mental health issues. So she was placed in a convent and conveniently forgotten about for a very long time because of those, because of those mental health issues. And that was quite common. Oh, this person is annoying, or maybe they're just a little bit too um, independent. Off to the nunnery, <laughs> like off to the convent with them. Or maybe we don't want to have to pay to support her. Although I guess you would still, depending on how much money you had, have to support the person, right? Yeah, it really depended. Because um, at this point um, in history... We kind of were just talking about it with the creeds, too. There wasn't um, a lot of communication between all the different small places because communication was just harder. And so you would have these groups of people who were like, we're going to follow this religious life. And they set up their own convent and they set up their own rules among themselves. And that could be different from another group. So there were differences um, until it was brought under more of a singular head. And this was also a time before you had social welfare and support as well. Yeah. So if you had a relative with mental health issues and you couldn't take care of them, you couldn't just go put them into an asylum or bring them to a mental hospital or take them to a doctor and, and you know, have the right prescription given to them. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't, you just didn't have all those options. So it was also like, this is where you put them because this is what the nuns had vowed to do. 
Like, this was their job. Their job was to care for these people, so that's where these people went. Yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of places where they were taken good care of and others where they weren't. Mm-hmm. All right, next we're going to talk about the Beguins. So for some women, living a life away from their family was not possible because they were already married. For them, the life of a Beguin was an option. So think of an older, wealthy woman whose children have all grown up and left, or a widow, or a young woman who wanted to delay marriage in order to serve first. So she wasn't looking to completely avoid marriage, but wanted to delay it a bit. This was a way of signifying one's desire and intention to serve God in a more official capacity. A Beguin woman was a woman who took on temporary vows of chastity and simplicity of life in order to devote herself to God. She was not bound for life, and she could renounce her vows and marry if she chose. A Beguin could live in their own home alone or with others following a similar path. They were often not tied to a specific order or convent. Rather than withdraw from the world, they lived in it. So their work consisted of caring for the poor, sick, and destitute. This is the only defined religious life that was started by women, and it occurred in part due to a large number of women compared to men at that time period. So, like, at that point, <clears throat> you were into the Crusades, You there were a lot of, you had the Black Death, there was a lot of issues, and so you had a lot more women than men, and so on the marriage market, there was a surplus. And because of this, where there was a group of women that came out of there that were like, mm, maybe we don't want to get married. Also, not really an option, not enough men, and they wanted to serve God. So this was a very easy way to move into either waiting for a husband or living the religious life without having to obey um, a superior nun to them, like living in a convent. And they could live among the people and do work among the people without being cloistered away in a convent. Um, It was a social situation. I found this interesting. It was a social situation that gave rise to this group. There was a surplus and an option. Um, here's a quote from someone who was writing an article for, for the Christian History Institute. She says, It offered women a wide range of charitable employment with a minimum of complication, a self-regulated balance between outreach and contemplative withdrawal, and the freedom to change one's mind and later marry or assume another religious role. Next, we're going to talk about a tertiary. A tertiary was similar to a Beguin, but one difference being that they had the security of being attached to a convent or other religious community. They made renounceable vows of poverty and obedience. They could dress in a nun's habit, um, and they supported other people in the religious life. So if someone who maybe was very dedicated to prayer and meditation and um, penance Somebody else would have to take care of their needs. And a tertiary was somebody who like just joined on and helped a helper. So they didn't have the same responsibilities as a nun would have. These women could be married or single, virgins or widows. Similar to Beguin's tertiaries had a desire to participate in the intense and intentional service of God. This Because at this time period, um, somebody who joined in convent or whatever was like, oh my goodness, they're giving up their life to serve God. And like, that was seen as an exciting or acceptable thing. It was like, I want to do that too, but I'm married. Like this was an option. You could, you could do this too. 
All right. So next up we have a hermitess, which is the female version of a hermit. And hermit means something different now than it did back then. So, so while nuns and tertiaries were only sequestered from worldly influences, hermitesses wanted to separate from other people too. So they often lived in remote and desolate regions, relying on the land and themselves to survive. So think of a woman living alone in a forest, desert, bog, etc. This type of life was possible because of the smaller number of people, towns, agriculture, etc. There were many open, uninhabited spaces to live in. This type of life really ended as the land began to be deforested, more roads were built, and the towns grew, and eventually even the Industrial Revolution. Hermitesses desired to be separate from the world as much as possible and devoted themselves to prayer, meditation, and scripture. People could stay and visit with a hermitess for a time to learn from them as well. The... Next one we have is an anchoress. This to me is the most interesting life path for someone who wanted to serve God. A kind of middle ground between the solitary life of a hermitess and the life in a convent of a nun was an anchoress. An anchoress is a woman who chose to live in a very small room, often built into the side of a church, for her whole life. These were called anchor holes, and most anchor holes were built with the anchoress inside, like they were sealed up and sealed off from the outside world with only a few windows for the necessities. Um, And a man who pursued this life was known as an anchorite, although it was primarily women who did this. One window looked into the sanctuary so the anchorist could watch and participate in services. One window for the essentials to be passed through or to give um, devotion or religious instruction, and one could be used for light. An anchoress would require a high level of help for daily living, including food passed through the hole, waste removed, um, paper, pencils, clothing, etc. Usually an anchoress would have one or two attendants to serve her needs. This life was meant to show a person's deepest devotion to living with God. So a woman could become an anchoress from a nun, an abbess, a hermitess, a tertiary, or lay person. You could really enter into this role from a variety of other occupations. There are records of people living like this for 20, 30, and even more than 40 years in these small little rooms. Think like 12 foot by 12 foot square room, or sometimes they were smaller, maybe so small you could hardly even turn around, or sometimes bigger with even, even a couple of rooms. There are examples of a couple anchor anchoresses living together, like being sealed into the same set of rooms, um, but usually it was one person alone in about a 12 foot square room. So the process of becoming an anchoress was complicated, and it's actually pretty interesting. Before the person was sealed inside the cell, they were given last rites, which is usually given when a person is close to death. This is because the person was now dead to the world and only lived to be close to God. So this was to kind of symbolize that. Similar to other positions of religious influence, prominent anchoresses were sought for advice and help by men in power because, again, they were considered to be some of the people who were closest to God. At one time, there were 210 anchoresses living in England in different areas. They could be, these anchor holds could be built into the wall of a town, into the side of a convent, into the side of a church. Um, And they were, 
you know, look at very highly, like look at what this person has given up to show their devotion to God. They were seen as the epitome of religious devotion. Um, and so if you have an anchoress living in your town, she's in this little room, you can go and talk to her. You can say to all of your little kids, like, look at what she's doing. Isn't she great? She's so pious. She's so respectful. Like she's so obedient to God's call. Um, and often they would write or they would write down things. They could instruct different people. We'll talk in a little bit about how one person was, one woman was very influenced by the anchoress who was her mentor as she lived. Um, and maybe we'll talk about it a bit at the end, why this sort of thing might come about. But personally, I found it interesting before I decided to judge whether it was right or wrong. Our last role that women could have in the religious life is that of a mystic. So interwoven in all the previous ways of life is the title of mystic. A woman could be any of the above and also be a mystic. So she could be an anchoress or a hermitess or a nun or a beguine or a tertiary and still be a mystic. So a mystic is a person who sought, above all, an experience with the divine. They often spend a large amount of time praying, meditating, and trying to experience God. One of the methods of getting closer to the desired experience was intense asceticism, or denial of physical needs of your body. So not eating, um, people would fast, wear hair shirts, stay out in the elements, or even use self-flagellation in order to quote unquote feel closer to God and have an experience of being close to him. Many of the best known mystics had religious visions and dreams, which they wrote down for the edification of others. And Bethany is going to read a quote for us from the pocket history of the church by D. Jeffrey Bingham. Um, so this is a pocket history about the church. The one little part they have on mysticism in the late Middle Ages was interesting, and I'm going to read a couple of quotes from there. As the search for the authentic spiritual life outside the institution and intellect gained ground, a mystical orientation to the devotional life emerged. As always happens in reactions, especially those that emphasize the individual and the private to the neglect of the traditional and communal, some of these people were heretical. When you fail to take into account the orthodoxy held by the church in the past and go off on your own, you're prone to wander. But not all of them did. The devotional writings of the late Middle Ages were not limited to men. The quest for a spiritual life was, of course, a woman's journey as well. And the women mystics prominent in the 13th century have left us an important body of literature. Mysticism for them was an alternative to the authority of office. That is the office that was exclusively male and clerical denied to women and laity. So they said, well, we can't be, this is me talking. Um, they can't, we can't be a cleric. So we're going to do this path instead. We're going to write down what our thoughts are on God. Yet it complemented the clerical office rather than challenged it. The women's visions affirmed the priests and at the same time offered women and laity a mode of spirituality that was ambivalent about power and authority. A lot of this was about, look, I don't have power. I'm in an anchor hold or I'm living alone on the moors or I'm obeying, I'm in a convent and I'm obeying my mother superior, my abbess. Um, and it was interesting because if you were going off on your own, you could get pretty close to heresy. <laughs> um, but if you stayed close and you could do a really great job of supporting the other authorities in the church.
we are now going to talk about two examples of women who lived in the Middle Ages. The first was Julian of Norwich. Um, Julian was an, an anchoress who lived from 1342 to 1415, about, in an anchor hold attached to St. Julian's Church in Norwich, England. Through her life, she had dreams and visions that she wrote down called showings. She wrote Div- Revelations of Divine Love, the first book written in, Eng- in English by a woman. Julian was a teacher and mentor to other women in religious life, as well as the people living in Norwich, which was the second most important city in England at that time. She's probably one of the most well-documented, and we have quite a few of her writings still preserved now, um, but we have very little information about her life, even before she was put in the anchor hold. We don't even actually know when she died. The only way we know she was still in the anchor hold is because people would give her an amount of money in their will, and we have their her name in their will written down. The other woman we're going to briefly touch on here is Hildegard von Bingen, and she lived from 1098 to 1179. Hildegard was born in 1098, like I said, in Germany, and was given as a child of about eight years old to a convent. She was the 10th child in her family, and it was a common practice for families to tithe children to the church at the time. She was taught by Yuda, the abbess of the convent and also an anchoress. Hildegard experienced religious visions as young as three years old. When Yuda died, Hildegard became the abbess and started writing down her visions after God told her to do so. Throughout her life, Hildegard believed that her physical ailments were punishments from God for her, her disobedience. Her writings got the attention of church authorities and they convened to decide if they were heretical or not. They declared that her writings were legitimate, and they began to be circulated. Hildegard traveled to teach and share her visions, usually under the disclaimer that her words were not her own, but from God. I don't know if that's a disclaimer or not. The disclaimer is, I'm just a poor, lonely woman. These are not my own words. These are the words that God told me to say. Don't take them as a woman's authority. Take them as God's authority. Okay. Because to me, that's more like putting more weight on the words, not disclaiming them. Like, I I think the disclaimer was more to say, listen, I know I'm a woman and women don't usually speak with authority in the Christian world. Don't worry. It's not my words. It's God's words. Right. Gotcha. Because she had actually, when God told her to in a vision um, and she didn't, she got really sick and she thought, Mm. I'm sick because I'm not obeying. And so then when she decided to obey, she got better. Okay. Interesting. Hildegard was regarded as a Sybil of the Rhine, which is a um, distinction in the Catholic Church. And she was also a writer, composer, philosopher, mystic, visionary, and polymath. She was considered a saint around Germany, where she lived and was canonized as a saint in May of 2012 by Pope Benedict XVI. Polymath is an individual whose knowledge spans a substantial number of subjects known to draw on complex bodies of knowledge to solve specific problems. So basically, if she had been born 400 years later and a man, she would have been a Renaissance man. Like someone who just loves learning about all different things and loves putting putting them together to come up with conclusions about and solutions about issues. The paths these women chose at the time were the only ones available to them outside of marriage and motherhood. And some of them chose to do so to show their deep devotion to God. And if you read some of their writings, which we don't have time to get into, some of them in my mind are wrong. Like God does not require us to wear a hair shirt to irritate ourselves so that we feel bad for stuff. Mm -hmm. Like there's Marjorie Kemp was another famous mystic. Um, 
And she wore a hair shirt while she was pregnant because she thought it was bad that she had had relations with her husband. And this was her way of showing God she was sorry. Yeah. And asceticism is like clearly like the word is, is in scripture and condemned by Paul. Yeah. Like that is not, but in the medieval ages, it was a really big deal. A lot of people did it because they wanted to experience God. the, The issue is that they were trying to experience God in their own power. Yeah. I found too, as I was reading through all these, like people spent a lot of time trying to show other people and show God that they loved him and they wanted to obey him and they were sorry for all their wickedness inside. And it made me realize how big of a deal getting the Bible into the hands of the people in their language was. Yeah, because these people didn't necessarily have the ability to study the Bible on their own. Right. Like a lot of them, especially women, were illiterate. Um, Maybe not if you came from a wealthy family and they were good with spending money on your education, but a, a large number, most people did not have a Bible. They just relied on what the priest told them on Sunday mornings. Because remember, when we talk about Catholic Church, there's the whole magisterial authority where what they say is right, um, no matter what, especially with the Pope. And so as we go along in, in history and we finally get like the Bible in the language of the people, this is where you start seeing people saying, okay, well, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. And I've just, there's issues with having everybody reading the Bible themselves and coming up with what they think on their own with reading. But I think that that is a better option than people have not having the Bible and having to rely on others to tell them what they think is right or wrong, because then you end up with this. Somebody who thinks that sitting themselves in a tiny little cell for their whole life is showing God how much they love them, love him. Anyway, um, we do have, I have some recommended resources for you. We will put these in our show notes. Um, a lot of these are actually from a podcast that I listened to called Stuff You Missed in History. They have done episodes on Marjorie Kemp, Julian of Norwich, and Hildegard of Bingen. Hope you find those interesting. And you fa- hopefully you found this interesting and that it adds to your knowledge of the faith of the church and how we've developed over time. We'll chat with you next week. Bye. Thanks for tuning into the Thrive Theology Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating or review. For show notes, resources, blog posts, and a complete archive of episodes, visit us at thrivetheology.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Thrive Theology. We'll chat with you next time.